Well, good to see you guys again this morning. Um, who, uh, for you Bible scholars out there, what is the most uh, important and the greatest commandment? Who knows what the greatest commandment is? There's a little bit of mumbling. Come on, you guys are Bible masters. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind, and your strength. And then there's a second one which is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right, that's found in Mark chapter 12, verse 3, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandments greater than these. This is from Jesus, so he knows what he's talking about, right? Here's what's so incredible, though. When you think about this, I actually think I crush this commandment. If this is the greatest commandment, then I'm crushing it, right? To love your neighbor as yourself, how easy is that? Because the truth is, I don't want people to bother me. So if you don't bother me and I don't bother you, then I get to love people. If I'm not bothering people, I'm so content being on my phone, doing my own thing, being in my own world. And if you're content with being on your phone and on your world, then I am loving you the way that Jesus, right? Love my neighbor as myself. I'm crushing it. And what's wild is like, so I think there's something probably off in the, in the, you know, in the calculation here. But that's the, the greatest commandment that Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. And you would think that we would make sense, that that would make sense to us. That we go, well, then I know how to love other people. But the bummer is, I think there's something fundamentally broken with us and how we understand what love is. And because we don't understand what love is, and therefore we don't understand really God's love for us. And therefore we also then don't know how to share God's love with other people. Jeff mentioned uh, last week he preached on uh, the Good Samaritan, and we were in the series of how good the gospel is when the things we get to give away. We talked about last week giving away our time and resources. And if you remember, he said, you know, two, two of the reasons why we don't do it is one, because we don't want to, right? You're like, oh, that's true. And two, because we have this hard heart. And so it is true that when we think about we want to love our neighbors ourselves. Well, why don't we understand love or why don't we do it? Well, the very first thing, right, is one, is that we're just sinful and rebellious people. We just don't want to. And that's easy. Like, I know what I do and don't want to do. Like, that's the easy thing. Thankfully, God forgives me, and I can deal with that with Jesus, and away we go. I don't want to. That's one. The second one is a little bit more tricky. I don't really want to love people because they have wronged me. Right? If someone's wronged me, if someone's hurt me, if someone's hurt my squishy heart, right, then I'm, I'm, I have to, you know, I have to put my armor around. And all of a sudden I build these calluses and I build this armor around my heart because I don't want to keep getting hurt. And so I don't love, not just because I don't want to, but because I want to protect my heart. My heart is so squishy and I don't want someone else to keep hurting that, right? But at least I know what that is. I know when I don't want to do it and I know when someone's hurt me and I don't want to do it. The third one's a little more tricky though. I don't love people because I actually don't anymore know what love is, right? We live in this totally broken down culture we live like where dysfunction is like the norm now. And so we don't even know what is normal anymore. We don't even know what love means. Uh, th- this is old. I feel like I'm having an Art Greco moment, but this show came out 40 years ago. In my heart, I'm like, this feels like high school. But no, this was like 30, 40 years ago when it came out. Do you remember the show Married with Children for all the old people in the room? I'm so old. I can't even believe I'm going down this road. But just bear with me if you're, young, if you're younger than that. I'm so sorry for this moment. But Married with Children was funny because, you know, when I was a kid and I was watching TV and like, you know, Family Ties was on, Cosby Show was on, my parents like, yes, watch those shows because there's a moral lesson at the end. And why can't you be more like, you know, the Family Ties guy or the Cosby Show people? And it turns out now we go, you don't want to be like the Cosby guy anymore, right? (laughs) And 
But what's interesting is it turned out those idealistic uh, shows, um, you know, were kind of, we're saying this is what we wanted as a culture. This is what to be aiming towards. And there was these shows that helped you get there. And Married with, with Children was a thumb in the eye, which was like, no, the world is broken. Our families are broken. And this show was just like highlighted, just like dysfunctional mayhem. The, the kids were promiscuous and failed out of school and the husband and wife didn't love each other. And it was just this gross, it's just a gross, gross show. But there was like there's something like soothing about it because you're like, People are like, oh, that looks like my family, right? You're like, there is my family. And, uh, and, and what's happened is, what's, and so this is, again, I'm so sorry it's so long ago, but it's interesting that about 40 years ago, our, our culture took this, this change. And we stopped having these ideals that we started moving towards and saying, listen, th- these are the kinds of people we want to be. These are the kind of families we want to be. And we started saying, no, no. All those families are broken. Turns out Bill Cosby actually is a dirtball. Like, we, there's nothing, we can't aim for anything anymore because the, everything's broken. And so we're just going to deconstruct everything, right? Began with deconstructing the family. Like, look, at this is what a good family is, or this is what a normal family is. And then we started deconstructing families. Then we deconstructed, right, our churches and our institutions and our faith. And what we did, we just kept chipping away at everything. And in some sense, what's nice about that is instead of like looking to somebody else, we became the center of the world. We became the center of the universe. If, you, if your family is how you want to be, if you don't have to believe in institutions and faith, your faith can be whatever you want to be, right, then you become the center of the universe. And we as a whole culture are like, yes, you are the center of the universe. How great is this? You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. Just, you know, you do you. We, I do me. Just don't hurt each other. And away we go. And we just kind of let that run. We've played that for 40 years. And you would think a whole culture that's just said, do whatever you want, we would be like, awesome. How much self-esteem would we have if we could do whatever we want? And if we know how to do whatever we want, we should be pros at loving other people the way that we want to be loved. But it turned out all of that dysfunction, all of that deconstruction set the world on fire, and we are fully living in it. So sorry for going all the way back 40 years, but one of my favorite sociologists, uh, Jean Twang, she wrote two different books, which these books, again, I, I was like, oh my goodness, this book, uh, Generation Me, was written in 2006, so it's not even relevant anymore. Um, but this is what she said about millennials. The prevalence of anxiety and depression has skyrocketed among young people. That could have been written today. It's a direct consequence, many believe, of this generation's relentless focus on the self. Now, while the more that we make ourselves the center, the more anxious we get, the more depressed we get. And then she wrote this other book um, in 2017 about uh, Gen Z. Back then, there was this big debate, are they going to be called the iGen or Gen Z? So she was an early adopter, and because she lost, no one's going to read this book again, but that's okay. (laughs) So she wrote this book called iGen, and she said this, social media and smartphones have fundamentally changed the way that iGen or Gen Z interacts with um, and a preference for online communication over face-to-face interactions, leading to a decline in social skills and deeper relationships. So true. Talk to Shelly and Ben, Abe, our kids, right? They do not know how to interact, and they do not know how to interact. They don't know what the rules are, and it causes just anxiety and depression, and it is just grinding our culture down. We had MCCU a few weeks ago. Even adults didn't know how to sit across from the table and have conversation with each other. Like, like, it's so weird. We've become a selfish, self-absorbed culture. And what's wild is because of that, we actually don't know how to love. And so if we want to be people who experience the love of God, and then therefore we want to share the love of God with others, we get our own sin and rebellion. We get when other people have wronged us, but we actually don't get the dysfunctional world that we live in. 
right? Jesus talk, talks about being in the world, and the world is a cesspool, and it's adjusted our, our eyes, it's adjusted our heart, it's adjusted the way in which we can interact and interact with God and interact with each other. But how cool is this that there's actually a solution? I'm reading this incredible book right now called Practicing the Way. It's by John Mark Comer, and uh, he's one of my favorite authors. And, um, and this is what he says. I'm just going to read the whole paragraph just because it is so powerful. So think back. Uh, you know, you have the picture of the Bundy family, right? Okay. As a general rule, we become more loving by experiencing love, not by hearing about a lecture or reading about it in a book. Psychologists' basic rule of thumb is that we are loving to the degree that we have been loved. And this is why it's so much easier for those who were well-loved by their parents or caregivers in their early years to give and receive love as adults. And we know that to be true, right? You see the kids who just get, I mean, like, I love uh, Louie, Ben Z and Shelly's little kid. That kid has been doted on for six months. He has had nonstop just love and affection from them, from their parents, from our staff, from you. And you can just see it. You can see it in him. He's just like, oh, I am a loved kid. Now, we're gonna have to tone that down. He's 14, like, simmer down, kid. But right now, right, you see that. And for those of you who grew up in, like, just, gosh, abandoned, emotionally abandoned homes, you're like, I have no muscle to give or receive love, right? It's a thing. But then uh, this is what's so great. That said, no family of origin is healthy enough to transform us into the kind of love that we see in Jesus. No matter how much baby Louis is loved, he's still not going to get enough. That's not going to get him all the way there. And for those of us who didn't grow up like that, I love this. What does it say? And no family is dysfunctional enough to keep us from becoming people of love in Jesus. All of us have the potential to grow and mature into people of agape. But to do so, we have to experience the love of God. Gosh, is that not good news? Well, the reason why I want to say all that is because now we can finally get to our sermon title. That was a long intro, but I just wanted to give a little background because I think we get so inoculated to the gospel is so good and we should be giving away our love, which is what we're going to talk about today. Because of the good news of the gospel, we get to be giving away love to one another, but we need to understand what that love is. And so many of us grew up in churches and church experiences where when we think of the gospel, we think of it as a, as a ledger form, as a business contract. You sinned, you were going to burn in hell. Jesus didn't want you to do that, so he paid this brutal price by him dying on the cross for your sins, and so now for the debt is paid, which that is good news. But that's a slice, that's a part of the picture. It is the mercy part of the picture, but it, the business contract I think if we only see God in that frame, we miss out on this incredible story that God's love and affection for us is not a business contract, but it is a covenant. It's a wedding vow, not a business contract. And so how great is it, that, like what Shelley said, that Jesus gives us a new covenant. His body was broken, the blood was shed so that our debt can be paid. Amen. That is all good news but we miss the relational heart behind that. And so we're going to walk through the gospel really quickly again, just for old time's sake. So this begins with this. Everything begins and ends with God's love. There's just a couple of verses I want to highlight. One, this is the easiest memory verse ever. First John 4, 16, God is what? Love. God is love. Now, again, because if we don't know what love is, we can make up whatever we need. And that's why Praise God that God gave us the scriptures. We read the scriptures so that we get a picture. We get the definition of these terms. So when we say God is love, we begin to see the character of God. And we go, oh, that's what love is. And we see how God interacts with the world. So one, God is love. And this is what I love. Uh, he goes on later in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. 
right? Just like uh, that, that John Mark Comer book, when, when we are in a family system where we experience love, we know how to give love to somebody else. When we've only experienced emotional abandonment, then we don't know how to give or receive love. And so it doesn't matter if you've had an incredible life or a dysfunctional life. What's so fun about faith and being adopted into God's family, now, no matter your starting point, you get to encounter this loving God who loves you first. He oozes love and affection and kindness on you. He loves you. And the more that you understand that God loves you, then you can begin to love. But if we just start to love without understanding God's love, then we are missing it completely. So we love because he first loved us. And then we understand, well, then what does love mean? So love does not mean leaving us alone in our, phone, in our rooms with our phones, right? That's how I understand love. Makes sense that God could love me that way. No, we have to go, Jesus says, you love the way that I loved you. So the greatest commandment, love your neighbor yourself, but then I love it in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, and Jesus has loved us, we must love one another. We, sorry, as Jesus loved us, we must love one another. It's a bigger command. You don't just love your neighbor as yourself because we're selfish. We just don't know how to do that. So how do we love one another? We love one another the way that Jesus loved us. So now we even have a clearer picture. If we go, God is love and he loved us first. Now we go, well, how did Jesus love? And however Jesus loved, that's the way that we want to live one. Sorry, that's how we want to love one another. Okay, and that leads us to our verse. I preached my sermon backwards. You like that? So we're ending um, with the actual verse that I'm going to preach on for a few minutes. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. And it says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved. This verse packs such a giant punch, and there's so much before and after it. Before it talks about our sin, our flesh, all the stuff that we love harping on, or you think people in the church love harping on about your sin and your flesh and your transgressions and wrath and all that good stuff. But it says this, but because of God's great love for us, it's not out of duty, it's not out of obligation, it's not out of like a, a gamer code. It's no, because out of his love for us, he is rich in mercy. So the first thing we understand about God's love is that he's rich in mercy. And mercy is the business contract. Mercy is the thing that you do, that you give away um, compassion and forgiveness. When you, are, have the, when you have the power to punish somebody or cause harm, when it's in your power to do that and you extend forgiveness or compassion, that's mercy. Because of our sin and our transgression, we deserve death. Like we deserve it. But God, who has the power to punish us, instead of punishing us, he extends mercy. Does that make sense? Okay. And he does it, why? Out of his rich love. He made us alive in Christ when we were dead for transgressions. It's incredible. And he says, and it is by grace you've been saved. So mercy, right, you deserve punishment. You deserve death because of our flesh, right? We deserve that. But God, who is rich in mercy, who, who has the power to punish us but chooses not to, extends mercy. And then it says, but it is by grace you've been saved, which is a different word altogether because grace is not about forgiveness. Grace is about extending favor, it's divine favor. It's God just plucking you up. Like, God, like Abraham, out of all the people in the Middle East uh, and ancient, the ancient Near East, he, God sees Abraham and goes, I choose you. Divine favor. I see you. I care for you. I bless you. I want that 
for you. Right? So God didn't just do a business contract and eliminate your, your, uh, your debt. That's mercy. He chose you. From the beginning of the foundation of the world, he chose you to be adopted into his family as daughters and sons in a love relationship full of love and full of kindness. Okay, so the real question is, so then like Jesus, if, if, if we want to give all this away, how do we give away our love? And I think we have to do two things. One, we want to be people who give away mercy, and we want to be people who give away grace. All right, so let's look at mercy first. In John chapter 8, uh, there's a famous story about, um, you know, this adulterous woman who comes before Jesus, um, and he, she doesn't come before Jesus, sorry. All these religious leaders grab her by the hair, bring her before Jesus, and say, hey, this woman's caught in adultery. What are you going to do about him? Jesus is a rabbi. He has power and authority, and he actually has the, the, the power and authority to punish this woman. He can sign off on her death sentence because he's a rabbi and they've come to him to kind of to corner him. And what's incredible, right? He has this moment where he leans down on the ground, he writes something in the dirt. I love it. Biblical scholars are like blown, their minds blown about trying to figure that out. That's a rabbit hole for another day. But at the end of the day, he says, you know, whoever's among you is the first without sin. Whoever's among you is without sin, you cast the first stone, right? One by one, they all leave. And what's so incredible is at the very end, Jesus looks at this woman and says, is no one left to condemn you? Well, then I won't either. It's pretty powerful. Is no one left to condemn you? I won't either. Go and sin no more. He extends mercy. He had all the power to just end this woman's life. And instead, he leveraged his power, his place as a rabbi, and put it in place and, gave, and basically spent his political capital to extend mercy to this woman. He does that again with Peter, right? Peter denies Jesus, Jesus, Peter and Jesus' best friends. Peter's like, I got you, I got you, I got you. He denies Jesus three times. In his moment of need, in his moment of most need, Peter's like, I don't know that guy, right? And we just blow it off like, Peter denied Christ three times. Listen, all of us have experienced betrayal and it cuts deep. Being betrayed like, if you betray me, right, without Christ, you are iced out, right? We, we do not want that near us. And Jesus, the guy he invested his most life into, betrays him, walks away from him. And what I love at the end of the, the book of John, he goes and he actually restores him um, back, to life, back, to, um, back to fellowship, right? And they have their breakfast together. And he says, do you love me? Feed my sheep, that whole interaction. But the very end is, right, then come and follow me. He restores him back to being his disciple, back to being the anchor of the church again. So if we want to love the way that Jesus loves, how do we do that? We have to be people who give away mercy. And between mercy and grace, let's be honest, mercy is the hard one. Mercy is the hard one because we have power to punish. We have people who've wronged us who deserve punishment who deserve to be iced out. And if we're going to love like Jesus, if we're going to give away what God has given to us, then we have to be people who give away compassion and mercy. Our high school kids, are, I think, are actually total ballers at this um, because our lives, we basically, you think about this, you've structured your entire life to not have to be around anyone you don't like. 
anyone who's ever wronged you, anyone who's ever hurt you, any, like, you found a way to ice them out and keep them out. But high schoolers, they don't get to do that. That's why high school sucks so bad is because all the people that have wronged you since second grade are all in your classroom with you. All your ex-boyfriends are there in your face all the time. Like the, it is there and they have to find a way to love and care for them or be at least in community with them. And they have the power to ice people out. So think of, uh, for, for Mercy, a high school kid can actually, a kid who's been cut out, this, happened in, you know, this happens all the time, where you know, a group of girls and one girl gets iced out for some reason, and some other girl steps in and uses her political capital to bring that girl back into the friendship group. That's mercy. Right? When someone has wronged you, broken your heart, most, usually in the most intimate relationships, happens all the time. I get to talk with people in their marriages and you hear people talk and fight and you realize there's no kindness between them anymore. And you're like, hey, would you consider forgiving each other? And they're like, no. Like, oh, okay, right? Because we are out of the habit of forgiving. And so we want to be people who are postured, who give mercy. Like I said, this is the harder one, but we want to be people who are merciful. God extended mercy on us. He had all the power to punish us and he forgave us out of his kindness God longs for us to be people who love and give that away. So we need to be people who extend mercy. And just think about this. If you do the Lord's Prayer as part of your devotional life, every day we forgive as, those who, as the way that we've been forgiven, right? We're going to say at the end of the service today. Okay, the second one is this. Like Jesus, we also need to give away grace. Um, I think it's in, uh, in, in Matthew 9. No, is it Matthew 8? I forget. Somewhere in the New Testament. You have to forgive me in that. But you know the story where, uh, where Jesus calls uh, Matthew the tax collector, right? And, um, and what is so rad is, right, Matthew, he's a tax collector. And if you're a good Jewish person, we know this all the time, tax collectors, we hate those guys, right? They, uh, they were Jewish people who worked for the Romans who take all the money. And, and, and the pictures that we get of tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus, like they're warm-hearted towards God. They want to be back into the fold, but they don't have any access but I think if we're honest, most tax collectors could care less. I mean, think about it this way. If you are wealthy and you're rolling financially, you don't really care if other people go, man, are judging you the car you're driving. You're like, whatever. Like, like, you know, we just write off the people who are below us. And I just think there's a whole grouping of tax collectors, right, who could care less that these poor agrarian uh, people in the, in the first century Palestine don't like them. They don't care. And so what's interesting is when you think of grace, it is really undeserved favor. It wasn't like, oh, Matthew and Zacchaeus, these tax collectors, they kind of want in. Like most of the tax collectors were hard-hearted. They, they didn't deserve any kindness from anybody, and they, nor did they want it. And what I love about Jesus is Jesus always runs after those people. He sees all of us, he sees our hearts, and he extends grace, undeserved favor. Matthew deserved nothing. Zacchaeus deserved nothing. And it's easy for them just to go on their way. And that's, what's, that's why I think grace is actually a little bit easier than mercy, because mercy, we have to deal with people who have wronged us. We have to actually spend political capital to welcome people who have been exed out of a friendship group back in. That costly but grace is something where we actually have the undeserved merit. You look around, I mean, what's funny is we live in a context, there's so many people that we see all the time and we just see right through them, right? Next time you go grocery shopping or you get something at a restaurant, just sit back and watch how our culture treats people in the service industry. Just see right through them. They're in the service industry, it's their job. But grace is going, that is a person made in the image of God and to see them 
and to care for them, right? To extend grace, undeserved uh, favor. This next one, this, this is the, I'm just going to give one slight uh, kick to the shins. You ready for this? Okay. Um, everyone knows it's 2024. This is the worst year of all time. I've been dreading this year as a pastor for the last six years. Election seasons are the worst. And uh, for 10 years, we've all decided to not talk to each other, and we all hate each other, and we've all made each other the worst caricatures of each other. It's great. How fun is that? You, we've X'd them out of our lives. We don't have to worry about them anymore because they're not even part of our lives. Undeserved favor is thinking back when you had friends who had different political ideologies than you. You had to go back a little bit, but there was a time when you had friends who saw the world differently than you. And remembering that they are made in the image of God, that they're human beings, that they have a different starting point, that they understand the world differently, and that we can be kind to them, we can be gracious to them, we can be inquisitive of them. We don't have to write them off as the worst caricature of them. And it is costly. It's so much easier just to write those people out of our life and then never deal with it again. But if we can extend grace, that's what it means to love um, the way that Jesus loved, to be full of grace. Jesus could have paid his taxes, moved on, and never dealt with Matthew. Jesus could have walked through the streets, kept teaching, never looked up and saw Zacchaeus, and then come to his house. But instead, Jesus goes, I see you. You're a human being made in my image. I extend grace and mercy and kindness and love, and you are my person. And what's crazy is people's lives are changed and transformed when they experience grace and mercy. Your life hopefully has been changed and transformed because you experienced grace and mercy. And so the gentle invitation for you is, will you be people who will extend grace and mercy today and this week? And so what I'd like you to do is to close your eyes and we're going to have a little moment to actually let the Holy Spirit speak to you. The Holy Spirit is brutal. He always answers this prayer. I always want him to go, what are the lottery numbers? Or what should I do tomorrow? He never answers those. But whenever I ask this question, the Holy Spirit always shows up. And this is the question I want you to ask. Holy Spirit, to whom are you inviting me to extend grace? Holy Spirit, to whom are you inviting me to extend mercy? Let's just take a minute and whoever God puts on your heart, whether you can have the strength to do it or not, at least let that person marinate in your imagination as you pray for them and pray for God's goodness. So let's be quiet for a minute. Lord, I have sweats just thinking about the people that came to my mind. Turns out loving your neighbors yourself is easy to write off, but loving people the way that you have loved us is a very high and incredible calling. And so God, before we even worry about those people, I pray that we'd be reminded again of your great love of your warm-hearted kindness, 
of your long-suffering and never-ending mercy and grace that you've poured out towards me, towards everyone in this room, towards the people who have wronged us and we've written off. You come after them and you love them. So God, help us live into the mercy that you've extended to us. Help us live into the grace that you've extended to us. And may we be your disciples. And may we be free with that love. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the courage and the power and the love to extend mercy and grace to whoever you put on our heart. We love you and thank you for being so patient with us in this journey. And all of God's kids said, amen. Well, the best way to be on this journey is to remind ourselves over and over again of God's incredible love for us so we know what we're extending to the world. So let's stand together and sing of God's love.